If you'd open your Bibles to Nahum chapter 1 tonight, we'll be looking at the first five verses, which say this, the oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord, and notice all capital letters for Lord, that's Jehovah, in fact that's the premier proper noun that will be used all throughout this book. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and it reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, the blossoms of Lebanon wither, mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your precious word. We realize that all scripture is inspired and profitable, and we pray that as we take the time in the next weeks to go through this book of Nahum. There will be a profitability that will be produced by the Spirit of God in each of our minds and hearts. And we will thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. We're living in a time in which the court systems seem to be more interested in the criminal than in the victim. The book of Nahum says God's court system doesn't work like that. It will not work like that. And this book of Nahum is absolute proof of that. In verse 1, we learn that this is an oracle of Nineveh, and in the Hebrew text or Greek Septuagint, there's no article the at the beginning of the verse. That's done for English translation purposes. It just reads an oracle of Nineveh, and that will turn out to be an oracle against Nineveh. In fact, the word oracle is the Hebrew word Messiah, and that particular word means you carry a heavy burden or heavy load. When it's used of something that's proclaimed by a prophet, the word means you lay a heavy message on them to bear. It's going to be grievous for them. What you're about to tell them is going to be a threatening message because it's going to describe what God is going to do to them. So when the book opens, this is an oracle of Nineveh. It's not good news for Nineveh. In fact, Albert Barnes said the prophecy is going to be stern. It's going to be awful. This is going to be a heavy, threatening, intimidating message. God does not only track down individuals, which you'll see, he tracks down specific cities, and he tracks down specific nations. In fact, this prophetic book of Nahum makes some amazing predictions against Nineveh that we're actually able to literally track, and we will do it in the weeks to come. Thirteen specific predictions of what God would do to Nineveh. And I want you to remember, at the time that Nahum is making these predictions, this is a powerful city. It's standing tall and bright and shining out to the world. And along comes Nahum, and he said, I want you to know God's going to completely destroy and remove the city of Nineveh by a flood. He says that in chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 2, verse 6 and 8. When God destroys Nineveh, it will be forever and final. It will not be raised up again to become a glorious, glamorous city. When God destroys Nineveh, many people will be drunk in the final hours just before he does it. I mean, these are very specific predictions that Nahum is making. When God destroys Nineveh, much of it's going to be burned. 
When God destroys Nineveh, the city will never again be named as a key city of the world, even though at the time that Nahum makes this prediction, it was the key city of the world. When God destroys Nineveh, the idols will be completely destroyed. People will flee when he destroys Nineveh and try to escape, but they're not going to be able to do it. And when God destroys Nineveh, it will be plundered and looted, and it will be, number nine, a great slaughter and massacre. Now, Nahum comes along and he says, this is what God's going to do to these people, and this is what God's going to do to this city. When God destroys Nineveh, all fortifications will be easily destroyed. You think you have a powerful, safe, secure country and safe and secure city, God's just going to bring that down. When God would destroy Nineveh, people will try to make bricks for protection, but that's not going to work. When God decides to destroy Nineveh, the city gates are going to be burned and their leaders are going to flee and not be found. That's what he says is going to happen to Nineveh. When you go through this book of Nahum, that's exactly what he predicts. This oracle is aimed straight at this city. Now, we spent a great deal of time last Sunday night describing Nineveh. It was the great capital city of Assyria. The ruins of the city have been located by archaeologists in Iraq. And somewhere around the year 1850, an English explorer by the name of A.H. Layard discovered Sennacherib's palace in the city and what a palace it was. You're talking about the elite place, the rich of the rich. His palace covered five acres at 71 rooms. It had two large halls, 180 feet long, 40 feet wide. The materials that were used to make that palace were cedars and cypresses. The doors were banded together with silver, copper, marble, and ivory. The city that we described last week enclosed that area. It was eight miles of walls and 15 gates. It had gardens and parks, and it was watered by a 30-mile-long aqueduct. So the predictions that Nahum makes about what God intends to do to this city are amazing. When you consider what this city was like when Nahum makes these predictions, this was the most impressive city in the world, and it was to this city that Nahum says, I have a heavy message for you. I have a heavy message for you straight from God. He's coming to get you. And you won't be able to stop it. Now, you cannot help but think of political and powerful people who, in this day and age, just basically forget about God. They build their mansions. They build their impressive sums of wealth. They've never been serious about God. They've never taken the word of God seriously. And they achieve it at times by corrupt means. A book like Nahum comes to them and says, I've got a heavy message to bring to you from God. And the heavy message to bring to you is, you've left me out, you're going to pay because I'm going to come after you. There will be a payday, and I'll come get you. To further add weight to this text, it says in verse 1 that this is a vision of Nahum. So what this means is, Nahum says, I actually saw this stuff. I mean, this was a revelatory vision. Prophets did get revelatory visions. They were able to see things that God revealed to them. And the word means that Nahum actually saw this. So what he describes in this book, he actually saw concerning Nineveh. And what he saw about God, it's what he saw in this book. Now, the fact that he was from Elkosh means we don't know exactly where it's from. As we build a case for it last week, we think he probably was born in Capernaum. He moved south in Judah to Elkosh, that he ended up being buried in Iraq. But we don't know that for sure. But what we do see here is whenever God is going to communicate his word, either write it or communicate it, he uses human agents. 
I mean, God could have just had some angel show up and announce this stuff to him, but he uses human agents. That's the whole program of God. That's the way that he's designed it. That's the way it works in the Old Testament economy. That certainly is the way it works in the New Testament economy. Well, as he begins this oracle, what he says is this. God is a sovereign God who's jealous for his people. And he's an avenging God to those who do things against his people. And he has sovereign power over everything to destroy places and people. Now, you may read through this book and you may say, well, would God really do this kind of thing? I mean, does he really target a city or power or leader and destroy them? As you'll see, he did do this to Nineveh. We'll make it known to you exactly how this broke down a little later in the expositions, not tonight, but in another exposition. But let's give another illustration. When the Lord Jesus Christ was here on earth, he said, you know, because of what you've done to me, God's going to destroy this place. He's going to destroy this city of Jerusalem. In fact, he went so far as to say, there will not be one stone left unturned. Now, when the Lord Jesus Christ made that statement, you can read about that in Matthew 23, 24, and 25. When the Lord Jesus Christ made that statement, Jerusalem was a magnificent city standing in all of its glory. In fact, the thing that led him to make that statement was they had come out of Jerusalem, out of the temple area. The disciples are going, man, this is some grand place. I mean, look at these buildings. I mean, this is just a spectacular city. 37 years after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, Titus came into Jerusalem with his Roman army and poured out, as one commentator said, one of the greatest horrors ever witnessed on the face of the earth. He leveled the city of Jerusalem, he looted the city, he burned the city, he slaughtered one million people. Yeah, I'd say when these kind of predictions are made, God does do those kinds of things because he certainly did it to Jerusalem. Now as Nahum opens the book, he begins by focusing on the sovereign power and greatness of God. That's how it opens. So he wants God's people and also the people of Nineveh to understand what kind of God you're up against. He wanted the people to realize, you need to realize the character and power of God that you're toying with, that you've rejected. You need to understand that. He wanted people to understand, look, when God decides he's going to make a move and start to move in judgment, no man, no angel is going to beat him. So he begins this by describing God, and there's 18 opening facts that Nineveh is given here that Nahum wants us to see. In fact, number one, God is the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. Now, if you've been around this church for a long time, you already know these things, but we'll repeat them for those who haven't. In the Old Testament, you have three main proper nouns that are used for God. One of them is Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. You'll read that when you read through the Old Testament. That is the name Jehovah. It's the sovereign covenant God of Israel, the I am who can do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants, but it emphasizes the fact that I'm the covenant God of Israel. That's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Then you'll also, when you're reading through the Old Testament, notice there's a capital L, small case O-R-D, Lord. That is the word Adonai, which means that God is the sovereign controller of everything. And then you'll read the proper noun God, capital G-O-D. It's Elohim, which is a reference to the triune, sovereign, mighty creator of all things. 
Now, in this book of Nahum, he's going to really emphasize the capital L, capital O, capital RD 13 times because he wants Israel to understand this is your God. This is your God. He'll use the proper noun God one time in this verse, verse 2. So it's clear that Nahum wants Nineveh to understand this warning, this heavy message that I'm bringing to you is coming to you from the covenant sovereign God of Israel who is the I am over everything. What corrupt leaders and powers need to understand is you are tampering. When you tamper with the covenant people of God, it is not going to go well for you. Oh, you may get away with it for a while, just like Assyria did. They got away with it for a while. But if you despise the people of God or you demean the people of God and you're doing that from a position of power, God says, I am very jealous for my people. And I won't look lightly at that. And according to Hebrews, we who believe in the Lord, Jesus Christ in this New Testament grace age, we are also in a covenant relationship with God. We can also make application to this. Because Wherever you're at, when things go against you and someone does something negative against you, you need to remember, I need to remember, Almighty God is going to repay those who've made life difficult for us. And that's exactly why Nahum begins by giving this awesome perspective of God. Now, the second fact is the Lord God is jealous. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. There is... An interesting word used for jealousy, which would seem to imply it's an intense jealousy. God has an intense jealousy for his people. It's a right jealousy. It's a good jealousy. And when people tamper with his people, when enemies tamper with his people, he has a godly jealousy for his people. He has a godly jealousy that is against those who are tampering with his people. You know, it used to be when we were kids, we would say sometimes, at least I did sometimes, when something negative would happen, well, I'm going to tell my dad. Well, I'll tell you what, if God's people say that, there's some real theology to that. If God's people say, I'll tell you what, if you've messed with me, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, I'm going to tell my dad. We actually had that happen in our first church. We had someone that was really getting whacked away from the word of God, and we had to make a call on the person, and we admonished the person to do what's right, and the person said, I'm not doing it, and what are you going to do about it? That's exactly what this person said. I'm not doing it. What are you going to do about it? I said, we're going to talk to God about it, and it was amazing what happened in the aftermath of that story, but I'm telling you, the Lord is a jealous God, and when people do things against his people, he's monitoring that, it's a wonderful blessing when God is jealous for you, but it's a terrifying proposition when God is jealous against you. And what Nahum does here is he begins by saying, I want people to understand that God is jealous for his people. And the third fact is he's an avenging God. The Lord God is avenging. A jealous and avenging God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, when he uses that word avenging, we're talking here about punishment. Punishment. Make no mistake about this. God is a God of punishment. God is a God who has an avenging wrath side to him. And when he decides to pour out vengeance on people, people die. Now, when Jonah had gone to Nineveh about 100 years before this book was written, and Jonah was upset with the fact that God had not destroyed Nineveh, that's what he wanted him to do. He didn't want to go to Nineveh and preach that 
Unless you repent, you're going to be destroyed. Jonah said, I'm not going to go there. And so he got on a boat and tried to run. You know the story of Jonah. And the storm came up and they had to throw him in the water. The fish swallowed him. And then ultimately three days later, he's spit up by the fish and he goes to Nineveh and he preaches. Well, when he goes to Nineveh and preaches and Nineveh repents, the fact of the matter is it made Jonah mad. And he was sitting under a tree as mad as can be. And God said to him, don't you realize if I would have poured out my wrath, if I would have poured out my vengeance, there would have been 120,000 children that would have been killed when I pour out my wrath, plus the animals, and those children couldn't even judge their right hand from their left hand. Now that's what the vengeance of God does. The vengeance of God is not something you want to take lightly. The vengeance of God is serious business. And God is an avenging God, and that fact is mentioned three times in this verse for emphasis. It's the word nokem, and it's one that means that God will avenge himself and his people. He'll pay back things. To those who've done bad things to his people, he'll pay back a full price and pour out retributive justice. He will inflict punishment on individuals. He will inflict punishment on cities, on nations, for those who've done bad things against his people. And the Apostle Paul believed that in the New Testament grace age. Because when he was about to die, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he said, Alexander the coppersmith has done me much harm, but the Lord will repay him. You see, he realized that the Lord is an avenging God. Now, there have been people who mock those who are committed to God and his word. They mock those that are committed. They can be at work. They can be at school. They could be on a team. They could be in a church. They could be in your family. There are people that just make mockery of people that are serious about the word of God. There have been people on TV and people in positions of power who have made fun of Christians. They make Christians out to be a group of non-thinking dopes. They've made mockery of biblical decency. They've made mockery of biblical godliness. And Nahum says, you need to know this. You need to know something about God. He's an avenging God. He is a payback God, and his vengeance will target you. His vengeance will destroy you. So there's your third fact. The Lord God is avenging. Now, the fourth fact is the Lord God targets his vengeance on his adversaries. He says in verse 2, the Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. The word adversary refers to people that are in a hostile relationship to God and his word. And God says, they're my targets. They're my targets. People who are in a hostile relationship to me, they're my targets. I'll target cities. I will target individuals. And what God says I'm going to do is I'm going to take my retributive justice out on them, and I'm going to pour out my wrath. See, when people stand against God and his word, we're not talking here about people that are in a neutral zone. We're talking about people here who have become real adversaries of God. And God says, I see them. I know them. I know who they are, and I'll destroy them. The fifth fact is the Lord God stores wrath for enemies. He says in verse 2 at the end, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The word enemy, oyeb, is one that refers to a personal enemy that God takes personal as one of his own personal enemies. And the text says he reserves wrath, which means when he says that he reserves wrath, that he does not pour it out immediately. He keeps in reserve until the time he decides to act. He will act at just the right time in just the right way. And his anger burns hot. It simmers for a while. And ultimately, when he reaches a point where it gets to the burning hot anger, he's going to do something about it. 
You know, D.L. Moody made an interesting observation about 30 Roman emperors and governors who persecuted Christians. He said not one of them came to a peaceful end, if you track what happened to him. For example, Nero kills himself, commits suicide when he's 30 years old. You have Domitian, who was assassinated by court officials. You have Titus, who got sick with some fever and died. He's the guy who went in there and destroyed Jerusalem. Then you have Vespasian. Now, this is not a pretty way that he went, but he had some severe bout with diarrhea to the point that some illness got in him and killed him. Moody's right. I mean, the people who are the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people, they do come to an end, and it's not a good one. When Paul wrote Romans, he said, what people who don't believe in Jesus Christ need to realize is you're storing up wrath for yourself. God has this record, and you're storing up wrath for yourself. God's enemies have an account, and they're storing up wrath. It's true for individuals. It's true for cities. It's true for nations. And once God's wrath has reached the level that God has determined, he will pour out his wrath on them. But then we learn something else that Nahum wanted the people of God to know at the first part of verse 3, and that is the Lord is slow to anger. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger. That must be true. There are billions of people in this world. I want you to think about this for a second. There are billions of people in this world who have been provoking God with their sins every day. Billions of people who've been provoking God with their sins every single day. Then you come to a verse that says, The Lord is slow to anger. Now this is the thing that made Jonah so mad. Back up just about three or four pages to Jonah chapter 4. Go back in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4, just three, four, five pages, and I'll show you that, verse 2. Jonah chapter 4 and verse 2. This is the thing that made Jonah so mad. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew... I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger. There's our phrase, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. God is not quick to pull the trigger. But adversaries and enemies need to know this. He will pull the trigger. Even though it takes him a while until he decides to settle scores, he'll do it in his time. It may take a long time, but it'll be the right time. God's anger is very calculated, very controlled. He's not some random quick thing that he does. He thinks it through. But people need to understand this. Once God pulls one of his weapons out of the scabbard, he's not going to put it back in the scabbard. When he pulls that weapon out of the scabbard, he's going to use it, and he's going to pour out his vengeance. And this is why enemies, and this is why God mockers, actually think right now they're getting away with things. I mean, this is why leaders and powers think they're getting away with what they're doing. They think they're in a position of power. Nobody's watching them. Nobody's controlling them. They're on top of the world. They think they're getting away with their corruption. They think they're getting away with their idolatry and their immorality. They think they're getting away with their deceit. They think they're on top of the world. They can do what they want. What they don't realize is that God's character does not instantly avenge the wrong and the evil, but he will avenge the wrong and the evil. In fact, he'll make that point clear in just a second. 
God says, all people need to know this about me. I'm very slow to get angry, but once I do get angry, I avenge the wrong. And you won't stop me from doing it. Which brings us to the seventh fact, the Lord is great in power. He brings that out there. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Just because God in his grace and mercy is slow to pour out his anger and wrath doesn't mean he doesn't have the power to do it, and it doesn't mean he won't do it. In fact, as you'll see, he's an omnipotent God. He has things at his disposal in his arsenal that he can use for destructive purposes, the likes of which nobody else can even use. Most do not realize how much power belongs to him. Some of the things he'll mention from creation in just a second But he brings out one more key point that everybody better take notice of. It is the eighth fact, and that is the Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. At the middle of verse 3, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Understand that fact. God cannot and will not ever leave a guilty person unpunished. God will never let a guilty person go free. God cannot be bought. He cannot be bribed. He will not just overlook something and let somebody off the hook. A person who is persisting in things that are contrary to him and his word are not getting away with it. And if a person does not permit Jesus Christ to wash their sins away, this verse right here promises you're not going to get off the hook of your sins and you are going to be eternally punished for it. God's not just going to forget about evil that was done. He's not just going to let people who did the evil escape his anger. He's slow to anger, but eventually he does get angry. And when he does, his payback is ferocious. Jonah was the evangelist, for the most part, who went to Nineveh. And when you look at it this way, Nahum's kind of the undertaker. He's going in there telling them, it's all over for you. You don't realize. Which brings us to the ninth fact The Lord sovereignly controls whirlwinds and storms. We read in verse 3, The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished in a whirlwind and storm is his way. Now, we live in a world of people that these meteorologists, I mean, these guys are something. I used to be in the media, so I noticed, like, let me just explain to you what it is. When they go on there and they say to you, let's go to weather control, the guy's standing right there. All they got to do is swing the camera like three feet, and there's the guy. That's the way this thing works. And then they come up with these beautiful brainstorm things. You know, tomorrow it's going to rain. You may want to take an umbrella. Well, thanks for letting us know that. Or it's going to be a blizzard tomorrow, so you may want to leave early and not drive so fast. Well, thanks for coming to Michigan and sharing that with us. We'd have never figured that out without you telling us on TV. But the most foolish thing that meteorologists do is tell you this is coming from Mother Nature. And they start talking about these storms. Mother Nature is really going to bring this in. These storms are coming from the hand of Almighty God. Don't miss what Nahum is saying here. He is saying here God's power controls everything that's happening in the air. His power controls the tornadoes. His power controls the hurricanes. His power controls the storms. And God says, I have that just in my back pocket as weapons. When I decide that I'm going to go destroy something and carry out my will, I can use that for my vengeance. 
Now, these are two very powerful, destructive things that God can use. And when he deals with a city like Nineveh, or he decides, I'm going to deal with a city like Washington, D.C., it's nothing for God, since he has all this power to do it. And by the way, if you study where these hurricanes have hit after God has hit these places with hurricanes or with tornadoes, like in North Carolina, South Carolina, or Florida, or you go to Oklahoma City, which is the number one area for tornadoes to hit, once those tornadoes and storms are gone, you don't see any major revival there. Why? Nobody even admits they come from God. Well, this is Mother Nature. It's Mother Nature that's out there doing this. But Nahum says, you need to understand this. The whirlwinds and storms, they come from the hand of God. The tenth fact is the Lord God controls the clouds. That's what he says at the end of verse 3. The clouds and the dust beneath his feet. Nahum says God's power controls what happens in the clouds with the rain. He can send drought. He can send howling winds and torrential downpours. God can use clouds and rain to pour out judgment. He didn't know his day. My goodness, for 40 straight days and 40 straight nights, God poured rain on this earth as a judgment. Clouds are nothing for God. He can just say, I'm going to command the clouds to go there and do my bidding. I'm going to pour out my wrath. See, what Nahum is saying is, you don't realize the power of God you're up against here that you're offending. His 11th fact is, God commands the sea to dry up. Verse 4, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. Now, Nahum says God's power is over the oceans, and certainly that would be something that would speak to the nation Israel, at least it should have spoken to the nation Israel, because he literally had parted a sea and led her right through the middle of the Red Sea out from Egypt. And he also did something similar to that when he took her into the promised land. We also know from the book of Revelation that he's going to display his wrath in that tribulation in a series of judgments against the seas. And a lot of this prophecy goes beyond just what God was going to do to Nineveh. A lot of it does go to what will happen in the tribulation. Now his 12th fact is the Lord commands the rivers to dry up. Verse 4 says that. He dries up all the rivers. Now again, when Joshua led the nation Israel across the Jordan River, he like put a halt to it, dried it up. You can read about that in Joshua chapter 3. But Nahum says God's power controls all the river water, and specifically it was predicted in this book, and we'll see it as we go through the book, that he was going to use the rivers of flood waters to destroy Nineveh. Well, the Greek historian Dorsus in 20 BC wrote that when Nineveh was being destroyed, heavy rains from the river flooded the city, started breaking down the walls. Xenophon, the Greek historian 430 BC, said that when Nineveh was being destroyed, there was terrifying thunder. Apparently, God decided, I'm going to use some of those clouds and some of those storms just to destroy Nineveh. I don't need any help in this. It's also interesting that today the Tigris River is drying up. In fact, that river is now so polluted that people risk death if you drink out of it. Not only that, but the sister river, the Euphrates, that's drying up too. And we know in the tribulation, God makes it very clear, having come through the book of Revelation, that he's going to use those rivers to kill people. He'll actually put poison water in there, make it poison for them to drink, and people will die because of a judgment of them just making mockery of him and his people. The 13th fact is the Lord commands plush land to wither. He says in verse 4, Bashan and Carmel wither, the blossoms of Lebanon wither. 
Nahum says, you need to understand how much power God has. He can cause you to be blessed. He can cause you to be productive and fruitful. He can cause you to be fertile, but he can also dry you right up. And he uses the illustration here of areas that were known to be very fertile, Bashan, modern-day Syria, to the northeast, and Carmel, which is like in the Megiddo area, which was on the coastal Mediterranean region, and Lebanon. They were known to be beautiful, plush, fertile areas, beautiful country. God says, I control every inch of that land. I control every inch of the world that I've created. I can cause it to wither, and it's nothing for me to do. I can give blessing. I can take it away. And in the great tribulation, God is going to pour out his judgment on the land, and it will just wither, and it will just burn up. Now, the 14th fact is the Lord commands the trees to wither. That's what he says in verse 4. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Nahum says, I control what's going to happen to the trees. He said, I use trees to carry out my judgments. And we know in the book of Revelation, one-third of all the trees are going to be burned up. Then it says the Lord will shake the mountains. You'll notice in verse 5, the mountains quake because of him and the hills dissolve. God can control the mountains. God can dissolve the hills. Nahum says God's power works in the mountains. God's power works in the hills. And he says, you need to understand this. He can also, 17, upheave the earth. In verse 5, indeed the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it, he will judge the world. Now, revivals, like happened in Nineveh, are short-lived, and that's the way it always works. For example, Jonah, a hundred years before this book of Nahum is written, he goes to Nineveh, he preaches the great revival. You go to the 1800s, here's D.L. Moody in Chicago. And D.L. Moody in Chicago, he preaches, man, what a revival. Go out on the East Coast and up the Eastern Seaboard, and you've got New York, and you've got the state of Maine, and then you can go south down into Georgia, and you've got Whitfield, and you have Jonathan Edwards and the Wesley Brothers, and they're traveling on the East Coast in the 1700s, and they're going to places like New York and all those places, and I'm telling you, there was a revival, but revivals are always short-lived. They don't last, just like the one in Nineveh didn't last. So when you look at Chicago today, you say, wow, there's a city of God. How about Billy Graham when he went to California, Los Angeles? Tremendous revival took place when he was in Los Angeles in the 1900s. And he goes there and he preaches. There's tremendous revival. Do you look at California and say, wow, there's a bastion of Christianity there? Nope, they don't work. Why? Because things are short-lived. People don't take God seriously. They don't take the word of God seriously. And what Nahum is doing here is he's saying, look, you need to understand God keeps track of what's going on. And this God of the Bible is a God who has tremendous power, and he reserves wrath for those who are not right with him. It's true he's slow to anger. It's true he doesn't act instantly, but that does not mean he will not act eventually. And if you read the God of the Bible is against you, you better be terrified of that, because he will not let the guilty go unpunished. And there's only one way that we can get rid of our guilt. There's only one way we can actually get rid of wrath that we deserve. And that one way is one person. It's Jesus Christ. And those who have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ are storing up wrath for an avenging God. 
See, God will never acquit a guilty person, which means I've got to somehow come up with something that can get me out of my sin and guilt because otherwise he's never going to acquit me. The one who can acquit you is Jesus Christ. So if you believe on him, you will have a jealous God always looking out for you. Let's pray. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, invite him in now. Invite him to come in and save you. Father, thank you so much for your precious word. Thank you for your people. I pray that you would just continue to work in our minds and hearts. What a great privilege we have of having a relationship with you. We don't deserve it. But thank you that you are looking out for us, Lord. We need to realize that. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are slow to anger, because if that were not the case, none of us would be in a relationship with you at all. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.